When you are building something no one has ever seen, something no one has ever imagined, who can you turn to for help? The answer is the other people who are facing the same issues you are. Those product inventing, boundary pushing, design obsessed folks who are just like you. Welcome to AWS Startup Stories. I'm Michelle Kung. And I'm Michael Copeland. What follows are the tools that work, the leadership practices that make a difference, and the lessons you only learn by building a company. And one more thing, what startup jockeys do with a very rare item, their downtime. So let's get to it. We're taking a deep dive into ASEAN in the following podcast, talking with founders and investors from one of the world's fastest growing startup ecosystems. From Singapore to Ho Chi Minh City, Bangkok, Jakarta, and other parts of the region, hear how entrepreneurs are tackling this massive market, what investors are hunting for, and why startups are having such an impact across all dimensions in this part of the world. Welcome to the AWS Startup Podcast. Um, I am here virtually with Nikolesh Goel, who is the CEO and co-founder of Validus, based in Singapore. Nikolesh, welcome. Thank you, Michael. Good morning, and it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, well, good morning to you. And uh, I, I want to check in. How how are you in Singapore and how is you and yours? All is well. It's a bright, sunny day. The number of daily cases are going down and we're hoping that life goes back to normal sooner than expected. Uh, I am with you there and I think we all are. So glad to hear that. I want to talk about Validus. I want to know, I know you guys are in the peer-to-peer lending space. You are a fintech company, as is uh, popular to say right now. But you guys also raised a round recently. So I want to get to that, but let's back up and, and tell us Validus Capital. You know, as a peer-to-peer lending company, what's the market you're going after? And, and as a co-founder, where did you see the opportunity? Thank you. So Validus is now almost five years old. When we started the company, we looked at the broad P2P lending space across the world. And there were companies like uh, Zopa Lending Club, OnDeck in the US, which which had been around for over a decade. So we had enough hindsight to look at what they'd done and tweak the model for Southeast Asia. So we decided that, you know, let's look at the two sides of uh, this puzzle. Um, On the borrower side, we decided to focus on small and medium enterprises. The whole thesis being that they were underserved by banks and financial institutions, and there was a huge untapped opportunity. And on the lending side, we decided why not skip the whole retail lending scene and instead focus on accredited investors, which means high net worth individuals and credit institutions, which could be family offices, hedge funds, banks, um, and the likes. And the whole idea being that uh, we could see in the West what started off as taking monies from many people and lending out to, to many people had now morphed into many different dimensions. So this became our little go-to business model. Of course, we've, we've learned a lot along the way, you know, changed uh, the micro strategy, but that remains our business model. We're now live in Singapore, Indonesia, Vietnam, and just setting up Thailand as we speak. Now, I understand the lending side of it, uh, high net worth individuals, hedge funds, uh, venture firms, um, things like that. On the on the receiving and the SMEs, what's the sort of profile of those small and medium businesses and why are they looking for this kind of lending? Sure. So SMEs, you know, it's, it's a pretty broad uh, term. It ranges from slightly larger companies all the way to micro enterprises. 
For us, an SME is a classic SME with revenues of anywhere between half a million dollars to a hundred million dollars with some kind of an institutional setup and a company which has been around for a few years. Um, these can be offline as well as online. Uh, these are companies that you see all around you. Um, if you look at the broad Southeast Asian landscape, uh, even in well-financed markets like Singapore, uh, more than 90% of all loans to SMEs are collateralized, which means if your business does not possess hard collateral, which happens if you're not a manufacturing outfit, all you have are laptops, people, and, and rented equipment, then you're not getting enough money from existing incumbent financial institutions. In addition to that, SMEs are not really financially sophisticated, which means they cannot assess their cash flow needs very well. By the time they realize they need money, uh, it's already a little late. They do not have the luxury to wait for an answer for two months or even three months, from which, which banks and, and a lot of FIs take. So that's where we step in. We, we do their credit assessment fast using alternate data and our proprietary algorithms. We get money to them on the tap that they can draw down literally at a 24 to 48 hour notice. And SMEs love that. Yeah. Uh, so I was going to ask how long does it take, but you just said uh, anywhere from a day to two days. Proprietary algorithms, you know, proprietary data. How do you do it? I mean, if you can, <laughs> don't give the secrets away, but but like, what are you looking at that others can't see and or how are you able to do it so quickly? Um, we, we studied a lot of the models, right? I mean, we looked at, say, what Lending Club was doing in the U.S. and they would rely on FICO scores. We looked at Ant Financial in China and realized they were using a lot of the data that the Alibaba ecosystem provided to them. When we looked in our backyard in Southeast Asia, we realized that there were no such public data sources um, and data was not consistent. In addition to that, when an SME gives you their own uh, financial statements, these may not be audited. These may not always be trustworthy. And therefore, the first question came as to what data should we rely on and how do we get our hands on it? I think once you have the data crunching and developing the algorithms, uh, you know, can be done over time. And that's where the speed and the power of execution comes in. Right. We relied on something that has always worked, and that is supply chain financing. So our go-to model um, is to go to each of our countries and partner with some of the largest corporates that exist in these countries. These could be large government companies, these could be private corporations across various industries. We get supply chain financing data from them about their vendors, dealers, distributors, suppliers, crunch that data using our algorithms, filter out the SMEs that we want to lend to, set the limits, the pricing, and then proactively reach out to them saying, hey, SME, you are already approved by Validus for this limit at this price. If you ever need the money, it's available for you. To your point, they might when you give them that offer, because you've already essentially approved them, they may or may not even know that they need the money. But uh, uh, like you said, they, when, they, when they find that out, they may find that out a little bit too late. Yes, absolutely. You know, I mean, this, this is how financial services has been changing over, over time. There was a time when, you know, we would go and apply for a credit card with the bank and we had to wait to get approved and submit documents. Now banks do their homework and you typically get an email from various banks saying, hey, I've already approved you for a loan. I've already approved you for a credit card. All you need to do is just do your KYC and, and it's there for you. We wanted to do the same thing with SME financing. Let the SME know that we exist. Give them a limit and a price so they don't stay in the dark. All they have to do is do their KYC and, and then money is available for them. KYC? And know your customer. Uh, know your customer. Okay, I, didn't, I knew that. I knew that. So 
I know you're talking about uh, a, a lot of div different industries, but do they cluster? Do you have verticals like in, in Indonesia that are kind of more prevalent in your customer base than others? What does it look like? Yes. I think the, the flavor of the industry varies by different countries. In Singapore, we see a lot of uh, our customers being in the industrial construction space because uh, Singapore spends heavily on infrastructure, industrial construction within this tiny nation. Uh, we also see a lot of business in food distribution. You know, it, it's, it's a modern retail market with a lot of supermarkets. There are a lot of suppliers to these supermarkets, whether it is chicken, eggs, uh, bread, etc. So a lot of these distributors uh, come to us. In Indonesia, Indonesia is, uh, again, an agri-plantation uh, consumer-heavy country. So we see businesses in the retail space. We see um, agriculture, manufacturing, logistics business. Vietnam, again, is a very large agri-exporter. So we've seen we've seen listed agri-companies uh, that we've partnered with, pharmacy chains. The whole idea is, is any large corporate which has uh, an abundant supply of suppliers and distributors who are not getting well-financed is a business that, that we can really serve. Right. So it goes down to sort of the, like the, the neighborhood pharmacy level and, and I guess up to the much bigger healthcare level as well, if you want to look at it that way. Interesting. You guys raised this round, as we mentioned, um, a venture capital, your B plus round. And I think it was about $20 million, um, if I'm correct. Did you start raising that round before we got into this pandemic? What was it like? And, and, you know, was the timing good, bad? It worked out fine in the end, obviously, or, or incredibly well. Um, but what was that experience like now? And, and what could we learn from you having gone through it? No, I think it, it was it was very interesting because we started raising the round just around the end of 2019. And that was when, uh, you know, everybody would start hearing about COVID happening in China. But um, like, uh, like everybody else, we we never believed that you know it could come to our doorstep. So initially, initially, everybody was you know always hunky dory. Tech valuations were soaring. There was a lot of investor interest, but um, we were one of those few companies that that saw the evolution of COVID as our round progressed. I think what what really helped was having a good bunch of existing investors on our cap table. Who stood by our side, uh, continued to commit capital as as we went about raising in the market. I think their faith and the business performance uh, allowed us to convince new investors. Uh, we got uh, Vertex Growth Fund, which is uh, the private equity arm of uh, Temasek's VC arm in Singapore, to lead the round, along with uh, one of the largest families from Malaysia who stepped in also. So. In terms of round dynamics, uh, we, we saw very interestingly the kind of questions change during this four-month due diligence process. Last year, all the questions would be about growth, scalability, how fast can you spread your tentacles. Yeah, how big and how fast. Exactly. Right? Yeah. And we could see suddenly the tone of the questions change to saying, how sustainable is the business? Show us the unit economics. How soon can you be profitable? And what if there is no next round? Can the business still survive for a decade to come? Interesting. I have to imagine that, A, you guys had the right answers, and and B, that that might also be setting you guys up for this incredible, incredibly strong period after the pandemic, right? If you're able to hit all those marks that investors are asking about, 
and, and this goes for, for other startups out there who are maybe in a similar situation, you come out of this much stronger than, than you went in, in in some cases. So there are, while, while credit is due, there are certain industries and clusters that are affected more than others. If you look at our industry, fundamentally demand side has actually improved because every time a pandemic or a financial crisis happens, banks pull back their limits and take on a very cautious approach. But if you look at small businesses, they need to survive and they are the ones which are hit the hardest. So in some of the emerging markets like Indonesia, Vietnam, where business is still on as usual, we have seen our volumes grow anywhere from a factor of three to five times you know, from the beginning of the year. And that's a huge surplus in demand because small businesses have their lines pulled back from banks, they need money urgently, and they discover us. Interesting. The second is the entire onset of digitization. You know, one of our biggest problems is how do we reach out to these businesses which are in the suburbs and the heartlands because, you know, they, they're not really online. They, they're not uh, on social media. They are not really going to Google and typing, how do I get a loan? But with the pandemic, with social distancing, a lot of those businesses are now going online and, and embracing new channels like us. So there might be pain in the short term, but uh, we do think uh, that we can move from being an alternate source of financing to become a mainstream source of financing. And and this whole process has gotten expedited because of what all of us are going through. Yeah, you see that across a couple of dimensions um, in different industries where that push to digital transformation has, has accelerated because of everything you describe. And, and I find it fascinating because it's it's happening across all kinds of industries. No, absolutely. I mean, let's take a very simple example. You know, six months back, if somebody had told us that, uh, can you run a business efficiently with everybody working from home uh, with maybe no physical meetings at all? And I would have said, probably not. You know, not at the same efficiency levels, but uh, this has happened. Uh, you know, we've been all working from home for quite a few months, but business is going on as usual. Everybody's learned to adapt, move on, and and make this work. So, yeah, sometimes uh, catastrophic events do force you to bring about change, which otherwise would have taken a very long time. Yeah, you were going to get there eventually, hopefully, but now you you have to get there faster. You're the co-founder, but. This is your first company that your first startup that you founded. You were you were ensconced in the uh, finance world in the M and A world. So I have to ask. It seems like uh, you were doing pretty well for yourself as an M and A person. Why start a new company? Ah, uh, sure. So it's it's somewhere the itch. So I started my career working for a private equity fund in India, and that's where I saw a lot of uh, the entrepreneurs. You know, who would, who would get receive money from the private equity funds. And that's where all the excitement was because they would use that money to then try and grow the company. I took a leap of faith and joined uh, the m and team for the largest conglomerate in Vietnam, where we raised money from some of the largest private equity funds in the world, uh, you know, a couple of billion. Um, and that's where I saw the power and the drive that this entrepreneur had who created this legacy over the last two decades, you know, created a company which which initially uh, was just in condiments to a conglomerate spanning many different industries. But I still had no hang of technology. So after that, I founded uh, a boutique advisory firm with a couple of ex-colleagues of mine where we focused on 
private equity and M&A for uh, consumer and tech companies in Southeast Asia. Um, that's where we really got to work uh, closely with some tech and consumer businesses across Indonesia, Vietnam, Malaysia, Singapore, uh, learned my ropes, and then Validus happened. Found like-minded co-founders, stumbled upon an idea. Uh, we made our mistakes, uh, learned from it, quickly adapted, and here we are. Uh, almost five years later, what started as uh, you know a tiny concept in a windowless room, uh, we are now almost 150 people across four countries. Yeah, you guys are clearly doing something right. Well, with your permission, maybe we can get into these questions because. Like I said, clearly you guys are onto something here and you've built this company. Like you said, you've made your mistakes, but along the way, you've also uh, done things incredibly correct. So let me jump into these questions, if I may. Sure. A tool that you use on a regular basis, something that you really can't get through your week or your day without. While you know, I'm not wedded to any tools, whether online, offline, I think right now, just given the situation we are in, I don't think I can survive without Zoom and Google Meet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I really can't imagine how we would be getting through without without these online tools. So what used to be uh, you know, a little bit of a novelty a little while back has, has really become the go-to tool for us. Well, so how do you, like you say, it was a novelty um, a little while back. Now it can sometimes be a bit of a drudgery. So how do you use those tools? Do you have any kind of tricks to either make sure that you get the most out of these meetings, that that you are as engaged with everyone as possible? I mean, how do you make it work? Sure. I think my um, I, I break it down into a few things, right? And it's 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 not unique. It's I think what what a lot of people do and I've learned over time is to have a very definitive set meeting agenda. Otherwise, uh, these meetings can just go on forever. Um, the second is we make sure that everybody logs in at least a couple of minutes early. The last thing you want is a meeting has started and you know you're you're trying to reach out to somebody who's not logged in. I mean, these are small irritants, but I think setting the tone for the meeting is very important. Uh, we try and speak in bullet points. If there is something that needs to be taken offline, should be done so, and we just push it in. Right. Ideally, everything should be wrapped up in thirty minutes. There is no reason for these meetings to go on for hours. And you realize that without coffee breaks, uh, you know, without without small talk, things can become really very efficient. Yeah. Hallelujah is all I can say to that. I mean, 30-minute meetings, uh, like, uh, that's about right uh, as far as I'm concerned. A leadership practice or routine, something that you do with your team or something that you've done in the past that you think really works? I think... Uh, you know, I mean, and leadership is something new to me. I'm youngish. I was going to say young, but then I realized I'm not that young anymore. But uh, something that uh, I have seen uh, good leaders do is uh, they surprise you. Uh, they surprise you in many ways, uh, both good and bad. And, and I think that uh, is is something that in, interests me. Uh, and what I what I mean by that is uh, there are times when you go to your manager, your boss, the CEO, expecting the worst and they surprise you by actually being very gentle and, and you know right. sitting down with you and telling you that how even though you failed or you screwed up it's it's okay and there are other times when you thought you did really well but they surprise you by actually moving the goalpost around and and you know just showing that you know maybe what you achieved you think is great but uh, there's a long way to go and i think that's important because uh, you know 
as humans, we tend to get into a, a groove, a, a safe spot very quickly. And I think that you always need somebody to show you that things can be different. Right. You avoid the inertia that you see in, in lots of kind of hidebound companies and industries and, and I guess stay on your toes. But as a practice, as something that you can sort of have in your back pocket, when do you pull that out? I mean, clearly you don't sort of do surprise for surprise's sake. There's got to be a good reason to to go there. Yes. Um, I think whenever you see that um, your team is getting too comfortable, your team has lost the drive to move on. Um, I think there is, you know, one fundamental uh, concept of entrepreneurship is that a lot of times your team and the entrepreneur are on slightly different tectonic levels, right? Because it's it's really your company, you're eating, breathing, sleeping, you're wedded to it. You're always thinking, what can I do better? Whereas for a lot of other people, they might not have the same level of ownership. So the onus is on you to always kind of push them a little bit to get more out of them. You know, have you thought about everything? How can we do this better? What have we missed? Is this really the best that we can do? Right, right. No, I like that. And the little nudge, that little push and encouragement really, really goes a long way. Yeah, I like that. Because, you know, people fall into their routines and then it's hard to get out and, and you don't do your best work, that's for sure. A lesson learned. Now, this could be something that you were pleased to learn or something that uh, you would rather not ever experience again? No, I think most lessons, while while we're learning, are quite, quite painful. But in hindsight, you know, more often than not, we're glad we did learn them. I think for me, um, what I've really learned is that entrepreneurship comes with a lot of emotional swings. You know, every everything in life, personal, professional, you know, you, you have good days and bad days. But uh, the level of exaggerated swings in entrepreneurship is very high. So a lesson that I've learned over time is to control my emotions. You know, every time something good is going to happen, you know, you believe you're going to absolutely kill it. You know, you're going to be the most amazing company in the world. Every time you lose a customer, something goes wrong, you believe everything is going to fall apart. You know, it takes a few years to realize that nothing is that great. Uh, Neither is nothing that catastrophic. Uh, Life goes on. Uh, it's just important to pick yourself, keep moving on, and look forward to the next day. So I think I, I now handle the emotional swings a lot better than what I used to. And that's a, that's a lesson that only time can teach. Given that, and given this sort of temperate view of, of the, the ups and downs of a startup, when you guys closed that round, that your Series B+, Plus, where you're like, well, you know, that was pretty good. Um, or, or did you allow yourself a moment of like, yes, we did that. Yeah, I mean, we we there there was this big hurrah, but I think it lasted only for a moment. Oh, right. Because anybody who's raised uh, VC money realizes that the job starts then, you know, when the check hits the bank, because then uh, there is this whole responsibility. You have to spend the money, you have to grow, you are answerable to a lot more people, and uh, it's it's like the clock is reset and you start all over again. Yeah, clock is ticking, that is for sure. Because expectations come along with that money. That is absolutely right. Finally, what are you binging on? What are you watching, reading, listening to, eating? You live in a great city with great food. Oh, yes. I, um, I've always been a movie buff. Um, you know, I, I like movies as compared to, you know, TV series simply because you can control your time two hours and it's gone as opposed to watching episode after episode. 
So right now I am uh, eagerly waiting for uh, Christopher Nolan's No Movie Tenet. Oh. I don't know when it's going to hit the theaters. Yeah, you and me both and the rest of the world, yeah. Oh uh, yes, uh, I think he's he's really discovered magic. So um eagerly waiting for that uh, in terms of reading I I've always been a Bill Bryson fan. Um I really like his his style which is just easy, you know, kind of keeps the pace uh, and and you know the the wit and humor that that he can kind of weave into it uh, is great. Uh, I think with with the work routine and especially the times that we are in uh, life can get pretty hectic. So every time I I get a chance uh, before before sleeping I w- I will always try and pop open my Kindle and and read any of the Bill Bryson books you know about his travels to Africa Australia or or through the Midwest in the US and and yeah it's it, it's a great way to relax for me yeah that is good stuff I I enjoyed as well um and it, like you I cannot wait for Tenet to come out so and let me recap a little bit you, in your video meetings you are very disciplined thirty minutes should be enough everybody show up a few minutes early and let's get to it um, with an agenda your leadership practice I think is really interesting like the the power of surprise how to keep your your teams not just on their toes but like you know energized and and ready to do more so i really like that one as well and then this idea that as a ceo you should have this kind of temperate or as a a startup person really you should have this kind of temperate emotion where you know nothing is the end of the world and then again nothing is also you know this glorious victory because you know in the next 5 minutes once you raise your venture capital round you're going to have to get back to work so Bill Bryson and Tenet for all of us. Um, we hope it comes sooner rather than later. One last question for you. Like, what's next for Validus? What should we be keeping an eye out for from you guys? Sure. I think within the company, we've changed our mission statement a few times. Um, right now, our mission statement is that we want to be the leader within the alternate financing space in each of the countries that we operate in. and the go to choice for both SMEs and our investors so i think that's what we are adopting uh, we we will be in four countries by the end of this year we just want to put our heads down and execute i think as a startup a lot of times we lose focus uh, we just want to make sure we either retain the number one spot that we have or we aim for it um, and i think once we have done that Uh, good things happen on their own. Well, clearly, good things are happening already and uh, have been for some time. So uh, we'll keep an eye on Validus and where you guys head to next and and how you guys grow. But Nicholas Goel, uh, co-founder and CEO of Validus, I really want to thank you. This has been great, and uh, I hope to talk to you soon. Ah, thanks, Michael, for the opportunity. Uh, been a pleasure. If you are looking to get started on the cloud with AWS. Our Activate program provides startups with a host of benefits including AWS credits, technical support, training, and other resources to help grow your business. Head to aws.amazon.com/activate for more. Do us a favor and leave us a review, and if you know someone who we should have on the show, or maybe it's you, reach out to us at startupstories@amazon.com. and subscribe to AWS Startup Stories wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.